I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. A lot of people, you know, if you have a friendship, if you have a marriage, if you have any kind of relationship, and you behaved as the current partisan politics goes, it wouldn't work. And sooner or later, the people will say, we can't tolerate this, we want something different. It's okay to question somebody's judgment, but not, a, not their motive. Bill Bradley has an amazing life. He was a gold medal Olympian, a Rhodes Scholar, a legendary star with the Knicks for 10 years, a United States Senator for 12 years. He ran for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. And to top it off, he's the host of the long-running show American Voices on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. He's had a life of curiosity, learning, and service. He would probably tower above a lot of us, even if he weren't so tall. This is so good to be able to talk to you today, because you can answer a question that I've been asking myself for a long time. How's the weather up there? <laughs> What's it been like for you to be so tall all your life? <laughs> You're kidding. No, no, you made me ask that. <laughs> I, what has, has that, you know, this show's about communicating or relating. Has that gotten in the way of your relating to people? Well, yeah, I remember I was in high school, I'd ask uh, girls to dance, and they'd look up at me and say, no, you're too tall. No kidding. Yeah, I went all the way to American Bandstand from Missouri to Philadelphia. And I had all these girls that had been in my imagination. There they were. I was going to go ask Callie Perry or whatever her name was to dance. And I get up and say, we'd like to dance. And she says, no, you're too tall. I can't get, I thought people who were tall were supposed to have this incredible advantage. Except in dancing. <laughs> you try to put your arm around her waist, you're choking her. Oh, I didn't get that far. <laughs> What, what what else? What are people having to look up at you? Do they feel they're at a disadvantage? No, but I, I no. Only only one person felt that. Who was that? President Lyndon Johnson. Really? How did he let you know that? Well, in 1964, I was in the Olympics. We won a gold medal, and Johnson, who was president at the time, entertained the Olympic team at the. White House, and this was everybody, all sports. And so the idea was you'd go through a receiving line, shake hands with the president, have your picture taken. And in front of me was a wrestler who was about 5'9", and a swimmer who was about 5'10", right? And they shook hands and turned had their picture taken, and now it came my time. And I was was nervous. My palms were cold. This picture was going to be on my wall for the rest of my life. And I shook hands with the president, turned to have my picture taken, and here in a southern drawl, move on. He didn't want your picture with him. He was too—I was taller than he was. Oh, my God. He just said, move on. Move on. So what's that done to you over the years? Do you, do you, are you sensitive about being tall? How tall well, are you? I'd well, rather be tall than not. Yeah. I, you know, airlines, terrible. You know, seats, terrible. Oh, Cabs, yeah. sometimes yeah. impossible. Can't get in and out of New York <clears throat> taxis. Well, some of them you can, some of them you can't. Well, I can get into them sometimes. I just can't get out. I have out. to have the whole, my whole legs across the whole back seat because I wow. can't get them straight. Wow. How tall are you actually? Six five. Probably now about six four. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've I lost a couple. I haven't, of haven't measured. I, I've lost a couple of inches in length, but my <laughs> my feet got longer. Is that right? Yeah, I'm about two inches longer in the feet, two inches shorter in the head. 
I don't. I don't think that happened to me. Yeah, well, it's just one of the interesting facts of life. <laughs> One of the things that we teach when we teach communication, like we teach scientists to communicate better at Stony Brook Center for Communicating Science, and one of the things we do is we start with improvising exercises, and the early improvising exercises are like games. They're little. They're they're experiences that get you to observe the other person really carefully so that you get in contact with the person you're trying to communicate with. And it has a really transformative effect on people. And it occurred to me yesterday while I was thinking about talking with you that you're an, a major part of your life was playing those games where you have to be totally attentive on the basketball court, my guess is you have to you have to know what's happening to your whole team, and at the same time, the guy who's guarding you or you're guarding. Uh, yeah, I mean that's what's called uh, seeing the whole court. Mm. You can't just see your guy and yourself, but you got to see movement of other people elsewhere on the court, and then you have to anticipate and you know. It's always the pass that leads to the pass that leads to the basket and being able to see that. And then when it happens, it's a great rush. And um, one of the great moments is that on the court. So it, it struck me how similar those experiences were. Uh, what we, the, the experiences we put the people through to get them to be really tuned in to the person at the other end of the communication, to kind of read their mind and know how they're accepting or rejecting what they're saying, how well, they feel know, about it. Well, you know, in basketball, that wasn't so much the case because you had your performance and then you left, right? But in politics, it is very much a matter of reading the person you're talking to or the audience that you're speaking to. And so it was in those years that um, I probably had the most exposure and experience to that kind of uh, listening yeah. and paying attention to what people say. Uh, you know, so often when you have a conversation with somebody, they're not listening because they want to tell you something, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And you miss out on so much yeah. because it's always the spontaneous moment that allows you to take a turn that you wouldn't have taken otherwise. So I would ask people, tell me your story. Mm. And they would tell me their life story or the thing was on their mind at the, at the moment. You know, I used to do these uh, walks every summer along the Jersey Shore, which is 127 miles. It'd take a week. I would walk on every township. I wouldn't walk 127 miles, but I would walk in every township. And there'd be a sign in front of me that said, meet Senator Bill Bradley. And people would run up to me, and I had to keep moving. And they'd tell me their story, or they'd tell me <laughs> what happened to them. You know, and one guy comes up to me and says, you know, I had a good job as a trucker, and then you guys deregulated trucking, you <laughs> jerk. Right? Or a woman comes up to me and, and says, you know, uh, very sad, their daughter died from um, an over, uh, a missed dose of an uh, anesthesiologist. So people tell you the, the darndest things. And when they tell you those things, they have a real impact on your life if you listen. Yeah. And that what I always felt 
what made politics what it was, the stories of people. As a matter of fact, the reason, one of the reasons <clears throat> that I, I like doing this radio show on Sirius XM, which I've done for 15 years. You've done it for 15, 15 years, years now. Yeah, wow. Over 1,000 interviews. And these are stories from people around America and even uh, Afghanistan. Right. Well, basically, they boil down to two kinds of stories. One is the story of somebody who has an unusual job, right? Like a public health nurse in the Aleutian Islands, a groundskeeper at Fenway Park, farmer in Nebraska, guy that washes the New York City skyscrapers. And those stories are always about the dignity of work mm. and the self-fulfillment that comes from doing anything well. The second kind of story is people who are doing something selfless in their communities, like the guy that shined shoes at the Pittsburgh Children's Hospital for 46 years. And how much would he put aside every day? Well, he'd take a portion of every tip and put it into a fund to pay for poor kids' health care. And then the day you interviewed he'd him. He put over $100,000 into A shoe-shine person. Yeah. And the, the so, impulse to do that. But, well, that, yeah. these are interesting. I, I read someplace or heard you say that— the executives at Sirius XM said to you when you were proposing the show, what what will you do when you run out of these interesting people? Yeah, right. And you've been doing it for 15 years. 15 years. And that was in the third or fourth year. And I said, look, this is America. I'm never going to run out of these people. It's the, key, the key is curiosity, curiosity about life, curiosity about the person you're interacting with, curiosity about the meaning of life. And to me, if you have that trifecta, then, you know, you can be alive as a human being a long time, not physically, but yeah. you know, spiritually. Yeah, while you're alive, it's good to be alive. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you have had some really far-out people, like the guy who wrestled alligators and trains people to wrestle them. Yeah, that's true. I, lo I, <laughs> I love remember that you, interview. When you said to him, what's the first thing I do before I wrestle an alligator? And he yeah. said, sign a waiver. Yeah, right, sign a waiver. <laughs> <laughs> then, then I say, oh, have you ever? How do you know you've made a mistake? He said, when the alligator turns with his jaws open, because <laughs> <laughs> you've got to sneak up behind the alligator. Oh, yeah, and to these him, are just and then they, jump on it. They're not used to being wrestled. You, you got to wrestle a naive alligator. It's not like he's been trained to wrestle you. Yeah, safely. I mean that interview was ten years ago. I remember it today. Wow, wow. Well, how do you find people like that? And that, I alligator. got a great producer like you. You got Sarah, yeah. I got Devorah, and um, I have Sarah and Graham. And Graham, yeah. Well, you got two, you know. And then I run into people. I run into things. I'll be, somebody will talk to me on a bus or somewhere, and I'll say, hey, that'd be a good interview. Let me, you want to go on SiriusXM? Or occasionally I do the, um, <laughs> A segment called the Famous American Voices Quiz, where people come on and I play a voice. They got to guess who it is. It's like oh. the old 20 questions. Yes. I, I'll find people and say, You want to play that? They, some of the courageous ones say yes. Is this something that worked when you were in the Senate? Were you able to get people to, other, other politicians, to tell you their story? to exchange things that had something to do with life other than policy. I think that's the absolute key to legislation. You've got to get to know the human being. Mm. Uh, it can't be just a policy position or it can't be just a party identification. It's got to be the human being. And I would do that often. I mean, in Washington, it would be bipartisan groups of senators who would have dinners at each other's house with wives. Um, 
I remember one summer, Al Simpson, who was a Republican from Wyoming, came to the Jersey Shore with my wife and his wife. And and um, the following summer, we went to Cody, Wyoming for the July 4th rodeo and parade. You get to know people, and it's that which allows you to develop the essential thing to legislating, which is trust. You have to trust. Uh, the old saying is, your word's your bond. But in the Senate that I served in, that was absolutely the case. Now, you could find creative senators, like, hey, could I get your vote, Alan, from this vote? Oh, look, you're going to do great. No, but I mean, do I have your vote? You know, you gave an incredible speech last uh, week. How yeah. about, can I get your vote? You know, you got to say, yes, you get my vote. But I, When I was campaigning for the Equal Rights Amendment, I was in Florida, and the head of the Senate at the time said, I'm definitely voting for this. You have my vote. And, I, and he cooked dinner for a whole bunch of us, and I thought, well, this guy's some kind of feminist. This is great. When the vote came, he read from the Bible against the Equal Rights Amendment and voted no. Well, so that, when you talk about tricky— But you tricky weren't guys, a senator. If no. He, if he did that to another he, senator— he, that, Then he'd have to pay for it. Yeah. Then, then he didn't keep his word. But you, you're talking, in a way, about a time that sounds like Eden compared to what we got now. Did— has it completely disappeared or is it possible that people – the idea of two people from opposite parties vacationing together, it sounds outlandish today. Well, I don't really know what it is like because I'm not there. I'm not in the human element. Um, I know that there are people who have personal relationships. For example, the – current senator from New Jersey is Cory Booker, mm -hmm. one of them. And he asked me uh, when he went to the Senate, what do I think he should do? And I said, become the friend of uh, 10, 15 Republicans. Be their friends. You got to work at it. And so he built relationships with people. Not, you know, not about policy, mm -hmm. but as human beings, you know. And uh, came time for an issue that's critical to uh, the New York area, which is a third tunnel from New Jersey to New York that yeah. the previous governor had vetoed, pre previous New Jersey governor, Chris Christie. And so, um, you know, Corey went to work and got that done. And the key vote on it, the key person was the chairman of the subcommittee and the appropriations committee who happened to be a Republican from Mississippi. So tell me a little bit about the nuts and bolts of it, because that's that sounds like something that could save the country, what you're talking about right now, and in a, in a way, by extension, save the world. When you say that trust is established, I, I don't what get— What does that mean? Yeah, I don't get the impression okay. it means I'll vote your way because I like no, you. No, but let me give you another example. Uh, my last year in the Senate, there was a big gas explosion in New Jersey— uh, pipeline. So, you know, I had oh, what I thought needed to be done. So I did an amendment and I went out and put it on an appropriations bill on the floor of the Senate. Mm. And the majority leader at that time was Trent Lott, a Republican from Mississippi, ironically. And so he came out and said, you know, it's not germane, meaning it's not, shouldn't be put on this 
bill, different kind of subject. And I said, yeah, but it means a lot to my state. And he said, no, you take it. I said, no, I got the votes. I'm going to push forward. So I spoke another hour, and he came out. How about taking it? No, no, I'm going to call for the vote. And he says, look, if you take the amendment down, I promise you that I will see that it passes the Senate. I said, you give me your word? And he said, yes. I took the amendment down. I left the Senate. I was not any longer a senator. I was a professor at Stanford. And one day I get a call from somebody from Trent Lott's office, who was his chief of staff, and he said, Senator Bradley, uh, Senator Lott just wanted me to let you know that that amendment that you pulled back, he just passed it through the U.S. Senate. What a story. So there's trust in action. Yeah. So that was a time when you felt you could actually trust someone from the other party. I'd even heard that in the old days, they would get together after work and socialize. Given the mood today, I wondered if that was true or if it was just a nostalgic myth. His answer when we come back from the break. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first-ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Award Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. If you want to learn more about End Blindness, you can read about it in Hello Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Senator Bill Bradley. You, you really covered so many interesting things that I, I thought I was going to have to pull out of you about the way you connect in politics. Is it a myth that in the old days they used to go out for a beer afterwards and socialize and now they don't? Uh, No, I don't think it's a myth. When I got there, for example, right off the Senate floor in the sergeant-at-arms office was a room where you go in and, you know, Republicans and Democrats have a drink in the late afternoon if you want one. And um, there was a senator's dining room, one table Republican, one table Democrat, but the same senator— dining room. Um, I think the dining room is still there. Uh, don't think the Sergeant at Arms uh, afternoon highball room is there. Um, but you So know. tell me that again. That that sounds interesting. I, I wouldn't expect that. On government property, the Sergeant at Arms serves highballs at, at well, 5 o'clock? Yeah, yeah. Well, he doesn't serve them, but, you know. There's bottles sometimes, laying around. Sometimes the rules are... 
the bottle under the couch. <laughs> no, not really. No, this is where you sit down with somebody who happens to be a Republican. How's your wife? You know, your daughter's in college. What, what is she doing? What's she studying? Or, you know, I saw that your aunt said something that moved me or whatever. What? So if we don't have that? If you don't have that, you don't have the lubrication and the trust necessary for doing big things. And we're not doing big things and hardly doing small things. No, so how no. do we get back to that? What, what, do, you, what do you think uh, will get us back? I think it takes uh, 25 senators who want to do it. And, you know, if you're isolated, if you're isolated, for example, Joe Biden tells a story about John McCain. That, you know, they knew each other for a long time. They were good friends. And <clears throat> so Biden is on the floor talking with McCain. And um, they're sitting talking, and they do that on a regular basis on the floor of the Senate. And I think somebody who's in the Democratic leadership, you know, you really shouldn't be sitting with McCain. And Republican leadership did the same thing with McCain. It's unbelievable. Which is just not—that doesn't Don't, produce anything. You, the, the experience is sterile then. It's don't they understand? Human. Don't they understand what you were talking about before about the importance of this? I think so, but I think that sometimes the combination of fundraising demands, meaning, you know, when I was there, you were in Washington pretty much all the time. You went out and campaigned, but now people come in on Monday night and they leave on Thursday night, and yeah. on Tuesday and Wednesday are fundraisers. And a friend who uh, has been a lobbyist for a lot of years told me that there's breakfast, lunch, and dinner devoted to calling people up, raising money during the day. Yeah, you got to go off government property, sit in a room, somebody gives you a list of 100 people you don't know, you call them and say, I'm uh, Alan Alda, I'm running for the Senate in you'll, Wyoming. You'll never hear me say well, whatever. that. whatever. <laughs> I'm running for the Senate in Wyoming, and I was wondering, could you help me out? Could you send a contribution? Yeah. This is what I believe. You answer questions. You don't take too long on each call. You won't get through your 100 calls, and you make thousands of calls. And you don't, and the time you spend soliciting on the phone. You don't you, spend with your constituents, and you don't spend on policy. Absolutely. It's or, a or gigantic waste. gaining the trust of your colleagues. Right. Right. But, you know, I always say that um, the recipe for the partisanship of our country today is the decency of the American people, who will say enough is enough. I mean, the people that I interview on SiriusXM who are doing something selfless in their community, mm -hmm. thousands, th hundreds of thousands of people in this country. And a lot of people, if you, know, if you have a friendship, if you have a marriage, if you have any kind of relationship, and you behaved as the current partisan politics goes, you couldn't, it, it wouldn't work. And sooner or later, the people will say, let's, we can't tolerate this. We want something different. It's okay to question somebody's judgment, mm -hmm. but not, a, not, not, not their motive. Yeah, you know? right. And you, you, you wrote about this, I think, in your book, um, We Can Do Better. Yeah, we can all do better. We can all do better. Yeah. And I was surprised to see that that came from a quote of Lincoln's. Yeah. We succeed only by concert. It's not can any of us imagine better, but can we all do better? So any of us imagine better, I guess, is the idea of uh, let's put up a grand goal and applaud it. 
like motherhood or apple pie, but doing something about the problem is different. Well, I think that both are necessary. If you know you're not going to even try to do something about it, then what's the grand idea? Yeah. So you have to believe that you they're related. You need the grand idea to, what I used to say, is be able to paint what paradise is that people want to get to, right? Yeah. And yeah. then you have to have the means to be able to do that in terms of the legislative process and and leadership generally. I mean, how would you define leadership? That's a really, I mean, that really has a lot to do with what we're talking about. Well, I mean, I think leadership is getting people to do something that they would not have done without you being the person who's telling them what they have to do or, or where they have to go. So, to how me, did, that's why do they do it? What's the, what's the way to get them to do oh, it better? I think there than are a lot of lot of um, buttons that you press. The number one is your own sincerity mm-hmm. and your own belief in what you're saying. That is the most important thing. I mean, you know, if you don't believe what you're saying and you're just doing what pollsters say, that's never going to work. You have to have a reason for being, and that reason for being is reflected in your advocacy for a particular thing about the country or whatever. And um, then it's a matter of technique of what you do. Do you tell stories? Do you use statistics? How often do you repeat it? Uh, Do you try to get people to um, uh, understand a deeper level? What does this mean for us as human beings, not just for us as senior citizens? or African-Americans, or farmers, right? And that's the key, to always bring any particular policy back to the general, to something that involves all of us. And a good politician's able to do that. Do you have a plan for how you, or a strategy for how you get from the grand idea to actually doing it? How do you you get it rolling? It ranges from... Careful plan to serendipity mm. and all the in-between. That's so good and, that, that you include serendipity yeah. in your strategy. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I went to the Senate or ran for the Senate in the first place was I wanted to change the income tax system, right? And um, What did you want it to be? I wanted it to have fewer loopholes so that equal incomes would pay equal tax. And I wanted it to have lower rates so you could keep more of each dollar you earn. And uh, ultimately, we managed to do that Uh, on a bipartisan basis. It passed the Senate in 97 to 3. Unheard of today. But partly that was a function of repetition, repetition, repetition. I mean, I, uh, probably every speech I gave for three years— had to do with tax reform. Somebody wanted me to talk about senior citizens. Yeah, 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 yeah. That senior says, now let me talk about tax reform. Somebody <laughs> wanted you to talk about uh, crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now let me tell you about tax reform. And they, got, didn't, they didn't get sick of it. They got yeah. 97 to 3. Right. And it got, it got so bad. I remember I was on a TV program that was recorded on a Thursday before the Sunday. And my then 10-year-old daughter was in the room. And... Uh, so I said, hey, stick around. Dad's going to be on TV. And uh, she elbowed her little friend with her and said, come on, let's go. He's going to talk about our loopholes. <laughs> well, this has been really fun for me. And to hear you tell me what 
I think I've found so, so many times over in what it, what's the essence of communicating and relating to hear, hear how it has applied to you in your life. I mean, uh, Lincoln, <laughs> we never heard Lincoln speak. Yeah. Evidently he had a high-pitched voice. Right. But um, he uh, basically had the Bible as his learning tool, right? And the Bible's just a lot of stories. And so the most powerful way to communicate is through stories. There's a story I heard you tell that reminded me of Sarah Silverman's story. You know, I don't know if you know, we, we interviewed Sarah um, as the first, uh, first conversation we had in this series. And in that conversation, Sarah told us about a troll on the Internet who had insulted her really badly. And instead of fighting him, she befriended him. You had an interaction with a troll that was hilarious to me. The guy, guy said, "I'm going to." What did he say? If 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 you keep oh, if, oh, if you keep oh, yeah, losing okay. games, well, no, no, this is uh, this is a story that you know I've told for many years. I'm talking about communication, which is where we were in the beginning. I can tell this story, and I can tell exactly what kind of audience I have by how they respond to the story. Yeah. And <laughs> briefly, the story is uh, about my third or fourth year with the Knicks. We were playing the Boston Celtics back-to-back, -back, Saturday night, Sunday afternoon. We lost both games, and the following week, I get a letter from a fan. And the letter says, Bradley, if you lose one more game to the Boston Celtics, I'm going to come to your house and kill your dog. <laughs> right? <laughs> And he signed his name. He signed his name. Joe Pell. Yeah. Maybe because he signed his name. I don't know. I wrote back to him. I said, dear Joe Pell, look, we don't like to lose any more than you do. We're doing the best we can. By the way, I don't own a dog. <laughs> About three weeks later, a UPS truck pulls up in front of our house. And a guy gets out and puts a big box on our front steps. And my wife looks outside and says, Bill, what is this box out there with a dog in it? <laughs> <laughs> and I look out, and there's the box. Inside the box is the dog. Outside the box is an envelope. On the outside of the envelope, it says, From Joe Pell. And I open the envelope. There's a note inside. The note says, Bradley, don't get too attached to this dog. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, 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 you know, I can't tell you how many hundreds and hundreds of times I tell this dog story, right? <laughs> yeah. And I then I'd talk about trade, or I'd talk about education, or I'd talk about taxes, or I'd talk about Russia, or whatever. And afterwards, inevitably, somebody would come up and say, "You still have that dog?" <laughs> That's what they remember. <laughs> but you make a contact when you when you're personal like that. And what is there is there anything about this? Is a little technical, but is there anything about a story that you think is essential? to capture the attention of the audience, to engage them? Well, I remember I was flying in a plane, I think it was 1988, when I first got interested in stories as communication. Mm -hmm. And um, I was sitting across the aisle from a CBS correspondent. We started talking, and I said, you know, my, my goal is to really be to tell stories and so forth. Said, my problem is that, you know, I, to get the story, it takes too long for TV. He said, there's not a story that can be told that can't be told in a minute or 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of story. I mean, it's the same story, but yeah. you get it down to the pith, 
And that's the challenge of communicating. Get it down to the pith, not you clearing your throat with this paragraph or that sentence, yeah. but what what is you gonna go one, two, three? And you, you don't have to say I was flying from St. Louis to Duluth and I happened to be in an airport and I bumped into this guy. You go right to I bumped into this yeah, guy once. Exactly. Once. Exactly. You know, nobody wants to know the other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and you think it's essential because it lays the context. Well, and it happened people, to you. So Yeah, but people don't have a they don't have the patience to listen to all of your stuff. They want to get to what you want to say to them. And that doesn't mean that you don't set the context sometime, you know. I know you have to go. There's something we do at the end of these shows. I hope you'll, you don't mind. The seven quick questions. Sure. The, the questions you haven't heard before. And they're generally about communicating. Sure. So, number one, what do you wish you really understood? Uh, I wish I really understood the meaning of life. Hmm. Well, first time I heard that. Hey, stick around. <laughs> what, what do you? It's wish? also short, you know. Yeah. Seven questions. <laughs> what do you wish people understood about you? Um, that uh, I like every human being have depths that the public can't see and that those depths need to be respected and sometimes engaged. What's the strangest question someone's ever asked you? A kid at Evergreen State College in the state of Washington during the presidential campaign, and Evergreen's a super liberal place where kids had earrings and green hair, and you know, that's the kind of place it was. It was a balcony uh, above me. It was in, the, I guess, the cafeteria, and some kids said, okay, Senator, what is your position on sexually transmitted diseases? <laughs> and I said, I'm against them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, here's a good one. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Um, I would simply say <clears throat> stop nodding your head and look down. Oh, that you that you would stop the talker by your stopping the nodding yeah. and looking down, yeah. like I'm shutting down now. Yeah, yeah. I don't uh, want to hear anymore. That's a good technique. Is there anyone you just can't feel empathy for? Yeah. Somebody once asked me, is there anything you hate? And I said, yeah. Well, what is it? Phonies, bullies, and bigots. Mm. I can't tolerate that. Either any, one of them. Any know, one of them. Okay. How do you like to deliver bad news? In person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? Depends on to whom I'm delivering it. If I'm delivering bad news to somebody I don't like, hey, Joe, did you hear? You lost. But <laughs> you, want, you want to hear him. <laughs> if I'm delivering it to anybody I care about, it's essential that it be done in person. Mm. Okay, last one. What, if anything, would make you end a friendship? I think people who are not trustworthy— uh, and somebody who had done something violent, uh, somebody who was cruel, um, somebody who had lied to me three times, not once, three times. How did you pick three? 
So that's just the way I've always been. Lied to me once, okay, I understand. Okay, I make exception. Lied to me twice. Now I've really noticed that you've lied twice. Lie, to- lie three times. Sayonara. Well, it's no lie that I've loved having this talk with you. Thank Great. you so much. Thank you, much. Alan. Thanks Great. for doing this podcast. Oh, thank you. And thanks for your and congratulations on your show. It's a terrific yeah. show. Thanks. I enjoy it. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Senator Bill Bradley is the host of American Voices, a program on Sirius XM satellite radio. On his show, Senator Bradley highlights the accomplishments of great Americans, both known and unknown. So it's been my pleasure to highlight Senator Bradley on my own show. He's as authentic as they come and someone whose genuine style we can all learn something from. Senator Bradley is also the author of six books on American politics, culture, and economy, including Time Present, Time Past, The New American Story, and Values of the Game, all New York Times bestsellers. You can learn more about his Sirius XM program, American Voices, and his best-selling books at www.billbradley.com. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Sheila Nevins, the longtime head of documentary production at HBO. For 35 years, I had a job in which I could make films that I wanted to make. What I like to do are microcosmic stories about one person, um, because one person is more interesting than a million people, to me. I mean, a million people may be suffering, but I get that suffering from one person. Insightful, funny, and irreverent, Sheila Nevins talks about the importance of story, the indignities of aging, the upside and downside of the Me Too movement as she sees it. And she makes me laugh. A lot. Next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these podcasts, you can subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. <laughs>